Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, welcome to another episode of No Holds Barred. Today, I'm joined on the line by lawyer, Ollie. Are you just use your first name if that's okay for now. How are you doing, my friend? I'm all good, thanks. And I would just like to correct you, I'm a former lawyer. Former lawyer. Okay, you gave up because... Well, like most lawyers do, quite frankly, if they don't want to stay in private practice, they try and jump as quick as they can into something more interesting, and that's what I managed to do. So you start your career off aiming for that kind of work and then get out as quickly as you can? Basically, that's what I did, yes. <laughs> what is it, though? Is it, is it because it's stressful or, or it is boring? Or, or what, 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 what would be the reason for someone to leave relative? Because you're, you're not, you, I mean, I, I've seen a couple of images of you. I haven't met you in person, but you don't look like the, the age to, to leave a profession. No, I, I, I wanted to be a sports lawyer. I wanted to be a football agent in the early stages of my career. And therefore, training as a lawyer was a route for me to do that. Um, private practice is very different. You know, these corporate law firms are very different environments to um, in-house. And that's where I wanted to go. I wanted to go in-house. And as soon as I qualified as a lawyer in the city, I actually went to the Premier League to be the general counsel on commercial and intellectual property. So for a lawyer who didn't want to be in private practice, but still wanted to do the legal work and wanted to work in an interesting environment, for me, that was a dream job. So I essentially used the legal training and you have to do your training contract at a law firm. I use that as a means to get somewhere. I understand. That's 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 interesting because most people like becoming a lawyer and working in law and and, and doing that sort of thing is aspirational career, right? A lot. Of, it's a high aim for for a lot of people. Most won't won't get there. You know, for for my example, it would never even cross my mind that I could be a lawyer. I just never thought that was in my path or I was able to do it. Um, what? Is this something you you knew you could do early on? Was it something in your family history? What what, what made you switch towards that that career path? How early on did you realise you were going to go for it? Well, good question, Flav. I think uh, to answer the question, did I have lawyers in the family? No, not really, actually. Um, my father was in textiles. My uh, grandfather, he was also in textiles. And my late grandfather, he was in jewellery. So there wasn't really that trickle down of law as a career in the family. But funnily enough, one of my younger brothers went off to be a lawyer, then jumped out as soon as he could as well after doing um, quite a lot as a corporate finance lawyer. But I digress. I um, grew up, though, around lawyers in Glasgow. So some of the family friends were lawyers. And one of them in particular worked at a 
a firm that did a bit of sport but had a reputation as a media law firm. You know, they would legal the Daily Record newspaper every evening, checking that there was nothing uh, defamatory in it. And I did some work experience to see what that was like. Again, you know, I was clear in my head. I wanted to be a football agent or a sports lawyer, but I definitely wanted to be an agent. But there was a guy in Glasgow, you might you might remember him, you might not. Um, his name was Jock Brown. He was a commentator on of course, Scottish yeah. football. So, yeah. But he was also a lawyer and an agent. And he was the sort of guy that I wanted to uh, follow the career path of. So I went and did some work experience in a law firm. And that sort of ingrained in me that that was the path that I wanted to take. And then every summer I went back and just topped up my work experience uh, with an extra few weeks because I felt that that was going to be important for my CV. And, you know, when I was I went to university and I still had that aspiration to come out the other end and do something around sports, law or to be an agent again. And I, I got involved with student radio and I interviewed people like Trevor Stephen. I did my dissertation on, on sports law. And, uh, you know, to cut a long story short, then even went and did a master's in sports law in Manchester and converted to English law with, a, with the vision that I probably would have more opportunity down south and up in Glasgow. So mm. um, it really, I just, I dipped my toes in to see if I liked it enough to um, establish a career in it and study at a university. How how intricate are the different facets to, to, to law? I mean, I know... I remember I had an issue that I needed some help with previously and a friend of mine was a lawyer and he was like, mate, that's completely out of my remit. I have no idea how to advise you here. It, it, it is so particular, isn't it, the, the, the different sections you can get into? Yeah, I think there's lots of different elements. Like I didn't like corporate, I didn't like property, but I loved intellectual property, media-related issues. Um, you know, I am not an employment lawyer. I'm not a family lawyer. These are all specialties that you, you train and then you practice into. So, for example, you do your two-year training contract in a law firm and you do four seats of six months in different departments. So you might do corporate, you might do litigation, you might do employment, you might do family, you might do property, whatever it is. And then if you are kept on by that law firm, you qualify into one of those departments that you've had experience of. And that is really where you start to apply your trade. So, for example, if I'd, I was offered a job in the corporate department of a law firm, I had no wish to be a corporate lawyer um but i had a friend of mine who had no wish to be a corporate lawyer who stayed there because frankly the money becomes so good and has ended up being a lawyer for 10 years and hasn't managed to get out whereas i've gone off and had this very interesting career path what, what is he is he happy or does he want out well he's now out so I'll probably answer the question but he's made a lot of money on <laughs> <en> route <laughs> i'm sure i'm sure so what this is fascinating so how long do lawyers stay lawyers Oh, I, I think Typically. that's quite a general question, to be honest. Yeah, of um, course. But look, most, most lawyers, in reality, stay in private practice, and uh, whether it's a high street firm or a, a city firm, and will probably spend their careers doing that. But there, yeah. is a, there are a high proportion that will go and work in-house. It could be a, a film studio. It could be a, a music label. It could be a, a sports org. It could be... Uh, at Debenhams or Arcadia, it could be anywhere because all these organizations need lawyers and that's what we call in-house lawyers. Um, and you'll find a lot of city lawyers will end up going in-house because of a much better lifestyle. They don't have the demands placed on you by um, the, the the firm on billing and clients, etc., and rainmaking, bringing in business. You know, if you're in-house, you have your one client, essentially, which is the person employing you. 
Um, if you're a law firm, you've got all these different clients and you've got pressure on you to go out and bring in business. I'm just getting curious about the term you just used because I, I remember the film, but I don't know what it means. The rainmaker or, or rainmaking. What does that mean? It just means bringing in business. So you're going out and pitching for business and bringing them in as a client. Okay. All right. Um, so you, 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 you went to university, you did a master's in English law. Is that right? You said? So I went to university in Scotland, studied law in German, spent a year in Germany uh, doing German law, which was horrendous. But it was, I went to a place called Hanover and I joke it was just one big hangover for a year because <laughs> German law was turgid. It was horrendous. And then uh, it's a final year in Scotland. And then I went to Manchester and I converted to English law, but I did a master's in sports law. So is it, when you say English law and Scottish law, are, are, are massively different? Not, different? not massively, but there's enough differences that you have to um, do a conversion course to be able to practice in England. So you're, how old are you now, Ali, at this point? I am um, uh, just to hit my 40s. I'm 41. Sorry, sorry. I mean, uh, as you, <laughs> you're studying in Manchester. <laughs> in Manchester. So I went to university in Scotland uh, a month before my... 17th birthday actually so i was about 16 and uh four years later i went to manchester so i was 20 just uh, around 20 you went to university at 17 yeah because in scotland what? in scotland you you don't have that uh, mandatory six year which you have in england so you can actually we have hires you have a levels i think over two years don't you yeah and you only have hires and then if you want to stay on for another year it's optional and you can do another qualification which if you think will help you but I'd, I'd got enough hires that I was able to get into university. I, I'd actually planned to stay for another year. But and eventually I, I, things uh, changed and I saw that I could actually go to university with the qualifications I had. It wasn't to do law in French, unfortunately. It was to do law in German. But I thought, well, if I can go to university now, why not? Yeah. Uh, yeah I mean, it's, it, to me, it's crazy that you're just 16 and, and you're going to study law in German. Like, it's... Sounds. I mean, was you nervous, or were you just completely comfortable in, in your own capabilities? Uh, I think I was nervous and excited, probably at the same time. Is it four years? I did a four-year degree. Yeah, so I did three in Scotland with a year in Germany. With a four-year Okay, so uh, you're in you're in uh, in Manchester, and you're studying English law. Um, but that that's not all you need to become a lawyer, is it? No, you've got to then uh, get a training contract at a law firm. So you, you've got to get your degree, but then to be able to become a practicing solicitor or a lawyer, if you want to be a barrister, obviously, you've got to get a training contract. And, and that's there's a lot of pressure and a lot of demand um, in respect of trying to obtain that contract. And I've heard this uh, term, the bar. Is that, does that exist in England? Or is yeah, the bar, the bar is if you want to become a barrister. So right. a solicitor works in a law firm. Or uh, the bar is in respect of barristers who, uh, the simplest way to say it is, you know, they, they, they do the court work. Understood. Um, so at what, at what point did you end up at the Premier League? So uh, Glasgow, four years, uh, two years in Manchester. Then I took a year out. Then I went and did my training contract in, um, in London at a, a firm just off Chancery Lane. I think we're around 1999, 2001. Um, so 2002, start my uh, training contract. Two years there. And in 2004, I hit the Premier League, summer of 2004. Was it difficult to get a job? Because that's an aspirational brand, right? It's, uh... Yes. I mean, look, I, I, was, I got offered this corporate role at a firm called Allswang and a very good firm. And I didn't want to do it. And 
I was browsing, as one does, through the Law Society Gazette magazine, and I saw this advert for, a, it was called, I think it was called a, a legal executive, or something like that, commercial legal executive um, at the Premier League. So they weren't advertising as a solicitor, it was a legal exec, and that's because the, the, the incumbent there was doing that role, and I think they thought they'd get away on salary as well, so they didn't pitch it as solicitor. So I saw right. the ad, I'm like, well, bugger it, I'm going to go for it. And um, lo and behold, I got the job. <laughs> Do you know if it was highly subscribed? Oh, yeah, it was massively, massively subscribed. God, those, those sorts of jobs come up few and far between. Funnily enough, a lot um, more roles at the Premier League have come up in the last year or two because they've expanded at a rate of knots. But when I was there, I cannot tell you what a lean organisation it was. We were in this building off um, the Edgware Road, and it was Connaught Place. I think we were on four floors, and there was only about uh, three to, to six people on each floor. So there's probably less than 30 people in the building at the time running the Premier League. I and mean, there are a few yeah. remote. Now I think they're in, um, they're in three figures, easy, um, in, in high three figures, two, three hundred, I think it was last time with a lot of remote people. But yes, it was a. It was oversubscribed, and um, the interesting thing was that the director of legal and business affairs hired me. He then left after three months and ended up going to work with Brian Barwick at the FA and being his right-hand man, and it was sink or swim for me. So the role that I got hired to do changed within three months, which made it a lot more exciting and interesting, and I all of a sudden had a lot more autonomy as well. And it was, But it was sink or swim. At one point, I was reporting directly to Richard Scudamore, as well, um, who was obviously the previous chief exec. And then I started to report to the now chief exec, Richard Masters. But I had a mm. lot of autonomy and I did a lot of things that probably weren't envisaged when I was hired. Yeah, so your job description changed significantly. Just just quickly, this is quite a boring question for our audiences, but I've always been fascinated by this. Is how easy is it to, like a, a company like the Premier League to change your job description? Do you have to go, is it like due diligence where they have to talk to you or can, can they change it? Well, I think my my role changed more than my job description. My job description didn't change for, I think it was probably around salary review when I was pushing for a salary review. And then mm. what I think the way Richard, if I remember rightly, Scudamore structured it, that he was bringing in another solicitor to do the football work. So what I ended up doing was just commercial and IP. And they brought in a, a lady called Jane Purden from Sunderland to do everything around you know, image rights and the regulatory work. So they structured it as I became then the solicitor in commercial and IP, and she was the solicitor on the, the regulatory football side. So that's why the job title changed. But my title, I mean, I was there for seven years. My, my title didn't change after that. Mm. Um, okay, so in layman's terms, for so anybody listening to this, um, what, what was your job? What did you do? So my, my role essentially was to protect the intellectual property of the Premier League. When I say intellectual property... Bernard doesn't understand that. If you look at how the the league generates its revenue, it's off its IP, which is broadcast rights uh, and sponsorship broadly. And I had a lot, you know, a lot of responsibility in protecting the media rights. Uh, that meant uh, tackling anti-piracy, tackling foreign Dakota cards in pubs, tackling anybody who was using the image of the Premier League in the wrong way or an unlicensed way. And then a broader was involved in doing commercial deals around uh, media rights, radio rights, with Talk Sport and BBC and sponsorship. I remember going down to Wrigley's to do the chewing gum deal. And actually, the, the chief executive now, Richard Masters, and I went down with a, 
another colleague, a young colleague who sadly passed away. And uh, Richard got called uh, home as soon as we got there because his wife went into labour. So I got left to do the Wrigley's chewing gum deal with the Premier League, which was great. So it was like sink or swim stuff. So mm. it, was a, it was a very broad role, which structured into commercial work. So as I said, you know, doing the, the deals, the, the legal work as well, and, and then public policy work. So we noticed that there were a lot of loopholes in the legislation. Um, illegal streaming is a great example how people can get away with it. Is it whose fault is it? Who should be liable? Is it the ISP? Is it the end user? Who do you tackle? Do you, t- do you sue you who's watching an illegal stream or do you sue your ISP who's providing you with a stream? And uh, we formed, uh, the Premier League formed a number of coalitions with other rights owners to try and tackle these issues. And public policy became a big part of my role, lobbying the European Commission, uh, going to the World Intellectual Property Organization, doing uh, meeting MPs, finding um, allies, etc. Uh, working with the creative industries, the, the film studios, music. Uh, I set up the Sports Rights Owners Coalition of international sports bodies from all over the world to work collectively. So public policy was a huge part of the role as well. Who? So who is? So you mentioned. I want to talk about your, your work now in terms of you know how you were solving these problems. And obviously, piracy seems to be uh, one of the biggest threats to the Premier League. Um, you'd imagine, I, I, I'd think, I guess, but it might be completely incorrect. So so you, you mentioned about who, identifying who's responsible, whether it be the ISP, whether it be the pubs, whether it be the user itself. What what was the, what was what is the answer to that question? Who is who, who would you go after? Well, I think we tried not to go after end users where we could help it, but we ended up, I mean, and you have to differentiate between the pubs using foreign decoder cards and the internet piracy. <laughs> With the internet piracy, we uh, we employed an organization to try and tackle it at source. Um, with the end user, we tried to make it more around an educative campaign. Why is it wrong to stream illegally? Um, look who you're funding. We tried to tackle the adverts on the sites from you know blue chip brands. And in all honesty, it's a bit like bashing frogs. You bash one frog and then the head pops up elsewhere. And that's just because the law wasn't really fit for purpose. Technology advanced quicker than um, than the legislation in in reality. Um, the was that sorry on you go. Was that frustrating for you as a lawyer? Well, it's frustrating as a lawyer, yes, but it's also frustrating because you're getting your rights owners uh, emailing you saying, "Look, we've paid for these rights exclusively, but we're getting diluted. What are you doing about this?" And then you would see that I, the website was being hosted in Guatemala, for example. Well, you, you can't do anything about that. I mean, you can, you, it's very evident at the moment. Look at the problem in Saudi Arabia with uh, Cute and the fact that they're saying the Saudi Arabian government is probably funding this pirate organization. Yeah. BN Sports have, um, have stopped buying exclusive rights, haven't they? They've actually given up rights to things like Formula One as well. So it's a huge issue where the legislation hasn't managed to um, keep pace with technology. We looked at an end-user campaign with uh, the Digital Economy Act about sending notifications to the end-user because you could, through the ISP, target the people watching the streams. But it came very, very messy, um, costly, and whether even with the right approach is debatable. And then with the foreign decoder cards, again, there was a variety of, approaches we took which were you try and tackle the suppliers of the cards you try and get the numbers and cut off the cards working with the broadcasters 
But as a deterrent, you still had to go into the pubs and say to people, look, what you're doing is illegal. And you give them the information. And we used uh, a former policeman, his company, to educate. And if you think about it, Sky were paying um, exorbitant amount of rights fees and wanted the protection. So they put an element of pressure on you to go and try and take action. So you did end up having to take action against the publicans and take them to court. But those publicans, in reality, were just pawns for the suppliers who were funding their uh, defence anyway. And you know that was evident with Mrs Murphy, who eventually, um, from Portsmouth, who ended up in the European Court of Justice, but it was not funded by her at all, that she was a pawn. It's, it's quite hard for me to understand what exactly what you mean by that, um, because not everyone's familiar with the case. I'm, I'm aware of it, it was in the news, and I'm since... Read up, read up on it, but what do you mean? Like, why would why would someone have an interest in helping her defend that case? Because if the the suppliers of the foreign Dakota cards, the suppliers of the foreign Dakota cards are providing a service to publicans that is undercutting Sky's official subscription, and it's cheaper, and there's more content because you've got a Saturday three pm games. So for us, that's a huge issue. If you are on this, if you've got to try and defend Sky's rights. So you have to look at how can you take action. So we say to the publican, what you're doing is wrong. And then they have the supplier of the Dakota car saying, what you're doing is not wrong. I and mean, actually, if you are sued or prosecuted by someone, we will pay your costs. We will defend it because actually it's in our interest for you to be acquitted or to be found not guilty mm. because then our business thrives. If you are found guilty publicans will stop come will stop buying this service They'll, they will not come and buy the service anymore from the supplier does that make and, sense yeah no, complete sense um so these are actual conversations that are being had with the publican and the suppliers or is it just done through email and um and messaging apps or, or are they actually meeting is this a legitimate business or is it an underground business no it's a legitimate business it was legitimate okay. business yeah absolutely because so from, from, from a lot of football fans, they presume that if you're going into a pub and you're, these Dakota, foreign Dakota cards are being played, that, that they're really just tapping into some sort of illegal stream that, ex that exists on the internet, right? So if, if, if we move on to the challenge of things like IPTV uh, and then internet streams, like how, how, how do you go... Like, how big of an issue did the Premier League see that? Like, did, Was this a constant conversation that you were in, involved in where they were saying, we, we need to figure this out? Were they genuinely worried about it or, or, the, or are they convinced that the vast majority of football fans will pay for it? No, I probably spent, I reckon. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. 
Let's get this dinner party started. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. In more than half my time on anti-piracy at the Premier League, that's how much uh, of a concern it was. We ended up suing YouTube and Google in the U.S., because they were putting highlights uh, or allowing clips of matches to be put on their platform and they knew full well what was happening and wouldn't take it down. And, you know, I had to put a proposal to the board. I had to tell clubs they were not allowed to have a YouTube channel because how does it look like getting in bed with the devil once you're suing them? doesn't really uh, cosmetically look great, although I think Man City at the time had a YouTube channel already. Uh, You know, anti-piracy was a massive issue, and it still is. I mean, you, you look at some of the press releases coming out of the Premier League when they're taking action and they're having success and even look at the, the statements around what's going on in Saudi Arabia. This is still a huge issue. And that's just because technology, has, again, has advanced far faster than uh, the law. Did you? I, I know you're not at the Premier League anymore. You've moved on. But um, did you see that, that the Chinese deal, the third payment that was due to the Premier League hasn't, um, gone through 160 million that was due to be paid to the Premier League by the the company in China that had bought the rights for the Premier League. Yeah, I saw, I saw the, that the Premier League now terminated that deal. Yeah, because the final payment hadn't been made. Yeah, but, but what is was that having any relation to that, or is it just purely that the they would want to they'd not want to honor that because of the cost? Yeah, I, 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 I haven't been in the in, in the inside. I haven't spoken to anyone, so it's difficult for me to say. I don't think it was piracy related. I think it was more COVID related. I think there yeah. was also the issue, wasn't there, with um, Ozo? And That's right. um, they stopped broadcasting Arsenal matches, didn't they? So they yes. stopped broadcasting Arsenal matches. They didn't get all the rights they thought they would because of COVID. So I think it was more a mix of that. Okay, fair enough. That's, um, the the um, the way the Premier League is structured, a lot of a lot of um, a lot of fans assume that the Premier League is absolutely rolling in money because of the amount it generates through the syndication of the brand. But that's not true, is it? I think I remember having a meeting with someone from the Premier League many, many years ago, and we were talking about this. And I might, this this will probably be the wrong figure, but it's something like 0.5% of the revenue goes just on running costs for the Premier League and the rest goes out to the clubs. Is that yes, right? Yes, yeah. I'm not sure exactly what the percentage is, but yes, yeah, the, the, the it's tiny. is similar, yeah. So do you think then that, because the Premier League gets a lot of stick and Scudamore used to get a lot of stick, do you think it was fair that the fans are frustrated with him or perhaps fans, you know, they don't know exactly how it runs and, and the work, the good work he did? What, what was your opinion of that? Well, I think, well, first of all, I thought he was a phenomenal operator. Yeah, I mean, he, he, was, he was one guy who didn't work on your issue, but knew your issue as well, if not better than you, having just picked it up like that. It was it really a very shrewd operator and a very good politician as well. Um, I, I think the Premier League has got that image around being money bags, but I think a lot of people probably just don't understand how it works. And then they don't seem to differentiate the Premier League and the clubs. And the Premier League is a vehicle just to generate as much money as it can for the clubs. Well, as you say, all it does is retains its operating costs. 
but every other cent, more or less, is given out to the clubs or distributed um, with the authority of the clubs, such as you know grassroots or charities or whatever it is. But I think there's probably just a misperception. Um, it Premier League becomes an easy target, doesn't it, for people to focus on? They um, so they get uh, the this lump sum in various lumps from from around the world. Then that comes into the Premier League. So what what happens then? How, they does it almost immediately go out to the clubs? No, there's a there's a distribution mechanism um, where you know, some money is split equally, but some is done in the basis of how many times you appear on uh, TV, uh, which position you finish in the at the end of the season, etc. So there's a subdivision in respect of sponsorship and international rights and broadcast rights. Uh, there's there's variety of formula, so it's it doesn't all go straight out. Okay, but eventually all the money leaves the Premier League account and goes to, goes to the clubs, yeah. bar the running costs, as we said. Yes. Okay. Um. So. Uh, so 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 you 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 spent seven years there at the Premier League. I did. And um and you had a, a, I guess your your time was successful there but you 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 chose to move on to F1 right yeah i, I got headhunted um for the role of secretary general very grandiose title um of the formula 1 teams association now formula 1 at the time had bernie bernie eccleston owning the rights and running a very lean division uh of the formula 1 management group essentially and then the teams who were participating had their association where they tried to sit down and work together and um, you know, make representations to Bernie about how they could improve the sport or ask for more money, et cetera, et cetera. And then you had the FIA as the governing body, the equivalent of the FA. And I went in to be the Secretary General of the, the Teams Association. Quite interesting because did I like F1? Yes. I mean, I grew up uh, with my, my dad's from Brazil, so Senna was obviously a favourite of ours, but I was Scottish, so I liked Coulthard. You know, Scotland's got a huge heritage of racing drivers with Dario Franchitti, Jackie Stewart. So I had an interest. Murray Walker, obviously, the BBC, Formula One, iconic. And I have to say, when the role was put in front of me by the headhunter, I wasn't sold on it. It was, to me, going to be a bit like herding cats, very political. And also, my wife was pregnant, and it required a move to Geneva. But I said, look, I go in open-minded, and uh, I went and met the, the chairman of the association, who was the team principal chief exec of McLaren. His name was Martin Whitmarsh, a really recognizable name for fans of F1. And I went down to the McLaren Technology Center, the VIP entrance, unbelievable, the most phenomenal building. I mean, just Google what it looks like. It looks like a futuristic um, building is, is, is I'll do that now. What is it? It's called the McLaren Technology Center in Woking, and I uh, got whisked in and taken past all the old cars. So you all you get the nostalgia immediately. And I met the director of HR, and he said, "Look, just to warn you, Martin talks a lot." And he gave me a little bit of an interview just to sense check me because he was running the process for the association. And I went and met Martin at two in the afternoon. And I didn't get out until 6 p.m. And I had God knows how many missed calls from my wife. And I think Martin only asked me two questions. But what he did was he sold it to me. And during the interview, he phoned the vice chairman, who was the Lotus team principal, Eric Bully. And he goes, Eric, I think we found our man. When can you see him? So I ended up going to see Eric the next day. They'd been hiring for a couple of months. I think they 
they'd struggled to find the right guy because they were getting a lot of people from F1. They wanted to bring someone out of F1 eventually. And um, mm. it got sold to me. And I was like, this whole thing around Geneva is a bit of an issue. They said, well, can you try and make it work? Because Ferrari will not want you being in London because they'll see you being um, aligned to us and the British teams. But if you're in Geneva, where when they set up the association, they made the headquarters and they even had an Italian guy living there, that would be helpful. I said, all right. I was open-minded and uh, I decided to do it. So I took the job. What did you tell your wife? I did. Yeah, I did. Uh, it was agreed uh, that she would stay. Um, look, I was going to be traveling for the races, but the, the baby was due to be born around uh, December. So it was the off season. So it was quite good that uh, we'd have some time at home. We didn't need to be in Switzerland. And then I would have a flat in Switzerland where they would move once um, you know she got through the first few months. So okay. she was willing to make the move, as boring as a city as Geneva is. For Switzerland as a country is incredible. As a country it is. I mean, I was most excited about having mountains on my doorstep and being able to, yeah. ski, to ski every weekend. But Geneva as a city is really boring. I've never been. I've only been to uh, Zurich and Basel, but it's... Um... Both, both, both incredible. The countries, it's like the most amazing countryside. Anyway, we're moving apart. Um, so, have you ever? Can I just ask a question? Have you ever had? Do you know what imposter syndrome is? Yes, yes. So have you course. ever experienced that at any yeah. point in your career? I always thought I was going to get found out. Yeah, I did. <laughs> I love that. That's a great time. My brothers and I were discussing it last year. That was the first time I'd heard of it. Because yeah, you always have this feeling like, what am I doing here? I'm sat amongst all these team principals and I'm talking about stuff <laughs> that I didn't know about the day before, but. I think um, you know, the fact for me was, A, I went into a role that was going to be very challenging. I was the walking dartboard in the paddock. Ber I'll tell you a story about Bernie in a second when I first mm. met him. But secondly, like, I didn't know much about the tech regs and the sporting regs. But if you apply your mind to something and you surround yourself with good people and you're willing to learn, then people respect you for that. And if you make mistakes, you just make sure you don't do it again. But I remember the first letter I drafted for them, I got immediate feedback. Like, this is great. But I think that's a legal skill that I could just draft good letters. Yeah. Um, you know, my Bernie, so Bernie obviously didn't like the association. It made it very difficult for us. Um, I needed to get a race pass for every race. Instead of just saying, here's a pass for the whole season, he made me get one at every race. And he wouldn't make, at the beginning, he wouldn't even let me pick it up at the circuit. Eventually, after... What was his beef? Why, why did he make it difficult? Uh, because he, he, Bernie liked divide and conquer, frankly. So anything that was uh, an obstacle to his divide and conquer was was something he didn't like. And, and the first time I met him, and I vividly remember this, was Singapore uh, 2011. So it was uh, the first couple of months of my role. We had a meeting with uh, the promoter of Australia and a couple of others around uh, the cost that circuits were imposing on uh, the teams. Because essentially the way it worked was Bernie charged the circuits uh, a shed load of cash and then the way they made it back was from ticket sales but also if you think about the paddock teams need hospitality chairs forklifts everything all the infrastructure so they just saddled a lot of that cost in the teams and it was the margins were huge and we said look we will help you promote your race but you've got to do something in the cost and at the end of the meeting bernie took me aside he said <laughs> and he did that funny handshake where you sort of, um, one hand goes over the other and you interlock your fingers, a really weird handshake. And he said, you're the new kid in the block here. I'll show you how things aren't done here. And that was wow. that was the gun to my head already. <laughs> yeah. Uh, did you feel intimidated at this point? 
Oh, did I feel intimidated? I look even even seven years into meetings at the Premier League with Scudamore, I still felt you had an aura and I, I had a degree of nervousness because I respect and respect because you didn't mm. want to f up. And with Bernie, you know, it's impossible as, as small as he is not to yeah. feel slightly intimidated because he has got so much leverage and power. So yeah, uh, that that was a challenge. The leverage he had was wasn't anything that we could encompass. You know. The, Politically uh, uh, and financially, Bernie controlled sport. Financially, he could send teams into disarray by putting a payment into their account late by a couple of days because all the the teams were leveraging so much credit off their suppliers. So that that was a huge issue. And then oh, you know, wow. politically, um, he could go and pick them off and make special deals, or he could stop you getting into the paddock with your pass, or he could not allocate you a pass for your sponsor. Oh, there was. Loads, loads of ways that he had leverage over the teams, which ultimately is why the association dissolved after. It sounds like, yeah, it sounds exhausting to be like that. Like you kind of get obsessed with that way of life, and he, he's a an incredibly successful man, and probably obsessed with that level of control yeah. because he doesn't need money anymore. Money isn't the, what drives someone like that anymore. So some, something does, but it sounds to me as as someone who has almost no ambition to go beyond what i'm doing now i'm very very happy and content with my life um to to to, to, to have that level of control and, and genuine ill will that would be sent towards you because i guess these teams knew what he was doing and knew how he was controlling the systems that it, there would have been a lot of ill will towards him i would imagine well there was but they were all scared of him we, we would have meetings and we would agree to make representations on a view and then the teams would come out of the meeting and they would completely acquiesce um, mm. I mean, I, here's a great, here's another story for you. I um, worked with the Circuit of the Americas in Austin ahead of their first race, and we discussed like doing an activation with the drivers and the teams to help promote the race. And they they said, look, the the national media in America is not going to come to Austin, but they are in New York. I said, well, why don't we after the Montreal race do an activation in Times Square? So I spent a few months going to and from New York. Uh, we were going to hire out Times Square. We were going to do um, a big fans forum on a big stage, um, pit stop practice with Pirelli. The teams were, were going to support it with um, you know, cars and, and drivers, etc. And a couple of weeks, no, and so I asked the team principals the question and said, when do we tell Bernie this? And they said the point of no return so that he doesn't cancel it. And mm. you could say, why would he do that? And I'll say it's about control, etc. And then a couple of weeks um beforehand i'm walking out of f1 in schools in london and the embankment and martin calls me and he says will you give bernie a call uh, i've told him about uh the new york event uh just you know tell him that ferrari is supporting and everyone's involved and it's really good for the sport because you know we've done a bad job in america to date mm. look at what happened in indianapolis with half the teams not running in the past so i phoned bernie tell him about it um and that night got a call from austin we can't do this anymore. Like, why not? He said, uh, the owners had a call from Bernie. He's been advised this would not be a good thing for us to do. And yeah, you question why. Wow. What, you've got to question, why did Bernie cancel it? And why did the circuit acquiesce to the extent that they did? And the circuit acquiesces because they think it's going to curry favor with Bernie. So if I do this for Bernie, he's going to help me out down the line. Mm. It doesn't work like that, unfortunately. Uh, and secondly, 
um, you know, Bernie has always got a reason for doing something, and, and he couldn't see that this would benefit the sport. He just felt that there was another New York promoter who might felt um, aggrieved at what was going on in his back turf. But we'd spoken with that New York promoter, and we tried to get them involved. So, you know, just what another yeah. illustration of where we were trying to grow the sport, but um, Mr. E uh, scuppered it. Yeah, that, I mean, that all of it sounds... To be honest, the whole... It, it all sounds quite, quite, um, quite difficult. Your 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 professional life so far. I mean, we're going to come on to something that you're doing, which is probably more important than all of that. But um, yeah, it seems like quite a stressful existence. Did you find your working life as a as a lawyer to to be stressful and um, taxing, or, or or did you overall enjoy it? So I wasn't a lawyer in the F1. You know, it was a business role, the Secretary General. I so did, you did I say did yeah, do, so. I did do legal work because that's just you know, training as a lawyer. You can still do the work. You know, you can do contracts. I, I managed the legal working group, for example. So I guess people. sorry. I guess my question then is just to, to do like a high level, high uh, high um, a high stress job. But it is. It does it turn into it was to, to stress? It? it was very stressful. That, that role. Yeah. You know, there's no beating around the bush. That that role was very stressful. Um, I, I would come back from weekends deflated, you know, I could see my missus and she's like, what happened this weekend? I was like, well, you know, they all agree something and then they go and see Bernie and they all uh, went over like dominoes. Uh, it was a very stressful role. Trying to, it took a long time to get things done. The most satisfaction I got was out of the fan engagement stuff that I did, which was they were called fans forums. And I put on events with the drivers and the fans free of charge away from the circuits to help promote the circuits and live stream them. And those were very rewarding. Stressful again, but very rewarding. Okay, fair enough. Uh, and so, so let's let's move on to what you're doing now, Oli. Um, London United. Uh, this is something that I'm involved in. Me and James Alcott are going to be um, casting for a FIFA tournament that's happening very shortly. I'm going to be posting the details on my Twitter. So if you listen to this, you know where my Twitter is. Have a look, little look and then get involved and follow London United on their socials and whatnot. But tell us a bit more about it, Oli. How did it start? What what, what made you um, want to, to get it up and running? So well, after, when, I, when I dissolved the F1 Teams Association, I, to cut a long story short, set up my own sports agency, got involved in Formula E, worked in sports tech for three years with Virtue Live around uh, mobile uh, gaming and VR and data and CGI, etc. And it, it opened my eyes up to eSports. And I went to Wembley Arena one Friday afternoon in September 2018 uh, to see the Face at CSGO finals. And I was completely overwhelmed by it and realized that eSports was the future and I had to do something in it. And the question was, right, where, where do I get into eSports? And I decided that um, you know, having had interesting roles that probably the best thing was to try and do something myself. And I, I brainstormed with uh, actually my co-founder, Adam, around trying to build uh, an esports org based on identity, so London, and community and content, and help gamers take a path to pro, but very much aligned with health, nutrition, societal benefits, and social purpose. And ultimately, that is what we've done. We, we have pivoted slightly from the first iterations, but I mean, that always happens with a startup anyway. And um, we held some events last year whereby we raised awareness of knife crime in Lewisham. We held an event with a grime artist and we called the event hashtag Grime Against Knives. We did a FIFA event last year at Red Bull Gaming Sphere, but we did a charity five-a-side football tournament beforehand. And then during COVID, what we have said is, look, we um, 
We want young gamers to belong to a community. We know that they want to back issues that they care about. And you only need to look at the protests that go on around climate change and Black Lives Matters. And we know that they want to buy from businesses that have a purpose element to them because the, the Gen Zs believe that companies are going to act. So what we've got done is we've created this online gaming community which builds diverse role models and addresses social issues through live streams, events, and content. And then we work with brands and um, you know, we, we've created essentially what we hope will become a lifestyle organization. Just look at our website, the merch, as an example that we've created. So in practice, what that means is during COVID, we did an online FIFA event and we raised uh, the issue of men, uh, mental health and loneliness. We did a League of Legends event thereafter, uh, which was around nutrition with biosynergy. And the event that you referred to in the middle of September, the 17th of September, is called United Against Racism. We're partnering with Leighton Orient. We have got a number of influencers, cross-sector sports people. We've got a Paralympian, a triple jumper. We've got a couple of Leighton Orient players. We've got an influencer, uh, content creator, Joel Gemex, FIFA Morris, involved. And what we're doing is giving the community an opportunity to compete offline uh, the Sunday before in PUBG, FIFA and Rocket League. And the winners will then compete in the live um, charity broadcast against the influencers. And we've got a, a lot of content related to uh, the diversity. Uh, for example, we've got a filmmaker called Rich Walker, who's done a film on uh, racism in football. It was actually filmed at Leighton Orient, coincidentally. So we're going to um, do an interview with him. We're working with a couple of organizations such as BME and Games as well. So it's not just going to be a, a charity, a gaming stream. It's going to be interlaced with content to raise awareness of um, the issue and celebrate diversity in gaming. Wonderful. Ollie, thank you so much for, uh, for, for speaking with us. And um, I really, really found that interesting. I'm really looking forward to doing uh, the casting with James on the 17th of September. It's a really good cause and really thank you for getting us involved. Um, but uh, until then, uh, speak soon. Thanks for having me. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.